When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the American Patchwork and Quilting Podcast. I'm Lindsay Mayland and I'm so excited to be here with you. We have a great show for you today. There are just some podcast shows that just seem to plan themselves. Um, And of course, we always try to make our content relevant and helpful to our listeners, but the past few weeks, our staff has just had a lot of experiences that uh, made for great conversations. So some of the things we're talking about today are just like unfortunate events that led to some lessons that we thought might benefit others. Um, And some are just fun projects that we thought others would be interested in joining in on. So we hope you enjoy the show and relate to some of the things we're talking about today. We're diving in with a doozy of a lesson. And that is what to do when your blocks aren't the right size. I'm sure many of those listening have experienced this before, even if it was only when you were starting out. So you make your units or your blocks and they're just not coming out the same size as the pattern says. Or some of your blocks may be one size and some of your others may be a slightly different size. In most cases, this is caused by a seam allowance problem, but it can also be caused by cutting and pressing issues too. So in the case of our staff member, um, who shall remain nameless, uh, just kidding, it was me, (laughs) and I totally know better than to make the mistake that was made, Um, but basically I was sewing a quilt for a video, um, and someone else in the the staff offered to help me make samples. So she was using her home sewing machine, and I was using another machine, And there were just slight differences in the seam allowances. And at first, it did not seem like a huge deal. Um, But as the blocks came together and then we sewed the rows together, those small differences uh, really added up. And this finished quilt top is a little wonky and the borders did not go on very smoothly. (laughs) So it's always a good idea to use the same machine when you're piecing a quilt because even that tiniest difference can really add up. Um, And we also suggest the same thing with cutting. Uh, So you should be using the same ruler and the same cutting mat when you're cutting pieces, because believe me or not, uh, depending on the thickness of the measuring lines on your acrylic ruler or your cutting mat, your pieces can come out different sizes. And um, if you're pressing, you always wanna make sure that you're pressing pieces in your units the same direction each time in each unit, um, and that you're pressing in a smooth motion. So all these little things can have an impact on the size of your blocks and how easily things are sewn together. Um, And of course, I knew better and did it anyways, and I thought it would end up okay in the end, and it did not, so (laughs) lesson learned. But luckily, in this journey, uh, we discovered a few fixes for uh, if things have gone awry with your blocks. So the best case scenario is if your blocks 
are the wrong size, that they are all the same wrong size. So for example, they're all smaller or they're all larger than the, the block size is supposed to be and that they all measure the same size. So in that case, you might not actually have many adjustments to make. So the blocks will all fit together, they'll all line up still. Um, the only considerations you may need to make is if your quilt has sashing, you'll want to adjust your sashing pieces to be the same size as the blocks by cutting them smaller or larger. And then same with the borders. So if your quilt top is going to be smaller or larger, just adjust the border sizes to be uh, the width and length of your quilt top. So that's best case scenario if your blocks are <laughs> the wrong size. If your blocks are all different sizes, so some larger, some smaller, some are the right size, um, but the differences are within a quarter of an inch or less from that block size it's supposed to be. Then you can let your sewing machine do some of this hard work for you. So when you're joining your blocks together, layer the two blocks on the bed of your machine with the smaller block on top. So the feed dogs, you know, those little teeth on the bottom that pull the fabric through your machine, they will pull the larger block that's on the bottom through at a slightly faster pace than that top smaller block, and it will ease in the excess fabric as you sew the blocks together. You can do the same thing with anything that's only off by a little. So if your sashing is a little larger, put it at the bottom when you're sewing. If one of your rows of your quilt is larger than another, put it on the bottom. Um, just remember that this won't fix things if they're off by a lot, but it can definitely fix slight differences. I do this in my own sewing room all the time, and every time I do it, I'm like, wow, this is <laughs> amazing, and I'm so thankful that it works this way. <laughs> so another option, if some of your blocks are too large, is you can trim them. Um, so you only really want to do this if they're off by an eighth of an inch or a sixteenth of an inch, anything that would still catch in your quarter seam allowance when you're sewing the blocks together. But um, this tip does not work well for blocks with points on the edges, like say a star block, um, because in that case, when you're trimming, you may be trimming into the seam allowance and then cutting off the points um, of you know your star points. Um, so you definitely don't want to trim your block smaller if if you are going to be cutting points. But if the block is something like a log cabin block, you can trim a little into those outer strips and not notice a big difference in the finished quilt. Okay, so if your blocks are too small, you can add what we call a coping strip. It's basically like adding border strips to each block. Um, this will change the look of your quilt in most cases, but it can actually be a really fun look and make the blocks look like they're floating on your quilt. So I've done this before with a sampler quilt I made, and I just loved the effect of it. Um, so you can add borders to one side, two sides, or even all four of them, and then just trim each block to a uniform size to work with them in your quilt. So. When I do this technique, I always oversize the strips I'm sewing to the block and then trim the entire block to size 
Um, there's really no use adding strips, especially if if you think you're having seam allowance issues and then still have a block that's not coming out big enough. So you can use strips that match the color of your background so it really blends in and you might not even notice, especially if you're only adding strips to, you know, one or two sides to kind of make up some of the size difference. You may not even notice them in the finished quilt, but you can also use contrasting fabric and make it just a design element in your quilt. So in extreme cases, if your blocks are just way off and you don't think some of them can be worked into your quilt with the fixes I talked about, you may just have to get out your trusty seam ripper, uh, check your seam allowance, and then re-sew the blocks. Uh, so not ideal, but sometimes, you know, we have to do it. <laughs> so we hope some of these solutions help anyone who's uh, experienced problems like this before. We know it's so frustrating to, you know, do all that hard work, all that time, and, you know, your precious fabric, and then not have your blocks be the right size and feel like you're not going to be able to make the quilt you had planned. We're going to take a quick ad break, but when we come back, I'm sharing another revelation I've had recently and a really fun project I think that many quilters will love. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back. So since I already feel like I just bared my soul about my wonky quilts in the first part of the show, I wanted to share another weird experience I had last week that I think other people could learn from. So last week I was sewing along, just chain piecing some scraps together, uh, minding my own business when I hear a snap and then my needle wouldn't move anymore. And the snap came from my foot paddle. So when I was pushing the foot pedal, nothing was happening with my machine anymore. My needle was not going up and down. So, you know, I did the normal things. I turned my machine on and off. I unplugged the foot from the machine and plugged it back in again. Uh, I don't know if foot pedals are the same as computers, but that is just what my brain told me to try first. I have never, uh, in all of my years of sewing, had a problem with a foot pedal before. So I started reading articles online, I was checking my manual, I watched a few videos, and guess what? There's a lot of things that can go wrong with your foot pedal, and I had no idea. So for those who don't know, your foot pedal has an electrical circuit inside. It has some springs, some metal pieces, some electrical wires, I thought it was just a large piece of plastic. <laughs> Maybe I'm the only one out there. I really just thought it was a big piece of plastic. Um, and I didn't realize it had all these small parts in it. So I took my foot pedal apart. Um, some foot pedals you can just kind of slide apart. For me, I had to use a screwdriver to separate the top of the pedal from the bottom, add a few joints to get it apart. It was easy to do, but it was not obvious how to do it. 
And then once it was apart, I saw that what had snapped was a small spring. So I couldn't tell where the spring came from. Um, The spring was broken. So I did end up having to order a new foot pedal. But here's some interesting things I learned. You can't be rough with your foot pedal. So this was definitely my problem. My foot pedal has come to many retreats with me where I just throw it in the bag carelessly. Uh, Sometimes I drop it on the ground when I'm moving things around. Um, Sometimes when it's traveling a little too far on the floor, um, I'm a little rough about getting it back in place. Never did I think I needed to be careful with this foot pedal like I am careful with my sewing machine. But after seeing the inside and seeing all the tiny pieces, I now understand that it needs to be handled a little more gracefully. Another thing I learned was that because of the electrical wires inside the pedal, if any dust gets inside or any of the wires become loose or damaged, the foot pedal can actually heat up and be a fire hazard. So if you notice that your foot pedal is warm, there is definitely a problem. Um, So you can wipe your foot pedal off with a dry cloth to keep it clean. You can vacuum under your sewing machine uh, to help prevent dust buildup. Um, And I also learned that if you're having issues with speed on your machine, such as um, if your machine just changes speeds randomly, if it's not getting as fast or slow as it once could, or even if there seems to be like a little jump when you first push down on the pedal, Those can all be indicators that there's a problem with the wiring inside. So there are some videos and articles I found online to troubleshoot some of these problems if you're, you know, a DIY fix person or you're comfortable with wires. And then just a reminder, remember to unplug the foot from your machine before doing anything so there's no electrical current running through it. Uh, This may be obvious, but it's a good reminder since I'm telling you you can take your your foot, (laughs) foot pedal apart. Um, You could also take your pedal to a dealer to help fix it if you're thinking you're having issues. For my machine, a new foot pedal only cost $20 and I found it on Amazon, so I ordered a new one right away for two-day shipping. Uh, So that may be the easiest fix. A lot of foot pedals are universal, so um, I just found my model number of my foot on the bottom and just typed that into Amazon and found the exact one I needed again. So it was pretty easy to find the one I needed. Um, But uh, lesson learned on my end, I guess I had no idea that I, uh, there was so much happening with a foot pedal, so much that went into it. So hopefully this helps others out there if this was surprising to you as it was to me. Uh, I have been sewing for 10 years and I've never seen anyone mention a foot pedal troubleshooting or cleaning tips. So I really had no idea the care required for that part of my machine, but I will be treating my new foot pedal much more nicely in the future. Okay, so now that I've shared all my hard lessons lately, I want to move on to less serious topics. (laughs) So on this week's segment of what we're loving, I want to give a fun shout out to Meg Dunton of Monograms for Makers. If Meg's name sounds sounds familiar, we actually did interview her on episode 465 of this podcast, so check it out if you missed that episode. But Meg is doing something really cool right now. 
she's hosting something called the Screenshot Sampler on her Instagram account. It started April 1st, and it's 100 blocks in 100 days. The blocks are six inches finished, and they're all traditionally pieced, so no templates, no applique, no curves. And the best part is that they're all based on blocks from Barbara Brackman's Encyclopedia of Pieced Quilt Patterns. For those who don't know about this resource, let me give a little background. So Barbara Brackman is a well-known and respected quilt historian, and her original encyclopedia came out in 1979. So that book lists thousands of quilt blocks, and when she could find the info, also the first date of when they appeared and who made them. So it's used by many people to identify quilt designs and trace history, and we use it in our offices all the time. The third edition of this book just came out a few months ago, and I just got my copy, and it's absolutely gorgeous. So in this new edition, the blocks are displayed in color along with the original line drawings from the first two editions. It has more than 4,000 blocks and 161 of them are new to this third edition. It's, it's truly a masterpiece and many quilters fangirl over this book. So Meg is basing this sampler sew along on 100 of the blocks found in this book. The great thing is that Meg did all the math in the instructions for you so that you can easily make these blocks. She's calling it the screenshot sampler because she's posting the instructions as images in her Instagram feed so that you can just screenshot them and save them to your phone to make them on your own time. But obviously you can always find them on her Instagram page too if you don't like to clutter your phone with pictures. I think this is such a fun way to piece some simple, classic blocks that don't take much time each day and join other quilters on social media to see their versions of the blocks. And of course, if you get your hands on Brackman's Encyclopedia, you can also be learning about the history of these blocks as you sew along. So as I'm recording this segment, four of the blocks are released and I love them. So I told myself I didn't need another big project like this, but I might pick and choose some of my favorite blocks each week to make. So Meg did say that she'll have some setting options for those that make all 100 blocks and those who just want to make some. So if you're interested, check out Monograms for Makers on Instagram, and we'll also link to her Instagram and to the encyclopedia in our show notes. We're going to take a quick ad break but when we come back, we're chatting about English paper piecing, one of our editor's favorite warm weather activities. Welcome back. I'm now here with Joanna, the editor of Quilts and More magazine for Back to Basics, a segment where we share tips and tricks about a sewing tool or a technique. What are we talking about today, Joanna? The weather here in Iowa has just started to turn warm and spring is on the horizon which always makes me want to start sewing on the go. So today I thought we would talk a little bit about my favorite on the go sewing, which is English paper piecing. 
I love the look of it and it's so easy to throw in your bag and take outside. So I thought I would share a few tips about that. I know paper piecing is also a favorite of several staff members, Lindsay, including you. Yeah, I agree. English paper piecing is so relaxing and I just love making hexagons with my favorite fabrics with just no plan. And then eventually I turn them into something that just strikes my fancy. So a few years ago, I even made all of my family and friends uh, English paper pieced gifts. You know, I still have that uh, paper pieced hexagon bookmark you made me. So I love it. It gets lots of use. Yeah. And it's so say it's so EPP is so great for using up your scraps too, which is one of the things that I love about it because I I hate to part with those little pieces, you know. Yeah, and I think like especially for on the go, like it's so easy to prep your pieces um, in advance if you just want to only do the sewing part. But also the tools are so small, so it can all fit in just like the tiniest little bag. <laughs> It's just made to take out the sunshine. <laughs> it is. <laughs> so here are a few of our favorite English paper piecing tips. Uh, we're going to focus on hexagons since I feel pretty confident saying they're the most popular shape for EPP. And they're the ones that most people start with. So first, let's talk about paper about the paper hexagon templates and the pieces that you make using those templates. My tip is to pay attention to the accuracy of your paper pieces themselves. It's very important that your paper hexagons all be the same size or the hexagons won't fit together easily when you sew them. When I first started paper piecing, I used my own paper templates to make the paper pieces by copying the pattern onto index cards and cutting them out. I didn't know much about how drawing and cutting accuracy affected my finished pieces and I found that once I had basted the fabric around the paper pieces and sewed them together, everything was slightly off. I hadn't accounted for how the inaccuracies in my paper pieces would affect the fabric that I folded around it and then affect my finished project. So when I cut out those paper pieces, a lot of the angles got a little bit off. And there was even a difference in that. I used different pens every time I copied the template onto the index cards. One pen in particular made a thick line and it couldn't get very close to the template. So those ended up a little bit too big and it was hard to tell exactly where I was supposed to cut and it all just kind of ended up a mess. Templates in general require a certain amount of accuracy to keep all your pieces the same size and fitting well, but I was pretty new to sewing at the time and I just didn't know that. My first few hexagon projects were really frustrating because when they needed to match up all the different angles, they just didn't. They were all slightly different. I still was able to complete those projects, but the hexagons puckered in spots where I had to fudge the angles to make them align since they clearly weren't aligning. And now I find that, um, A, I've gotten a little bit better about making accurate templates. Like I've paid more attention to it, but it's just so much easier and I get such a better finished product if I buy pre-cut hexagon paper pieces instead of making my own. It saves a lot of time and I just don't have to worry about human error, which I know I'm going to make, um, since those pre-cuts are made by machine. I also recently got a hexagon paper piecing die for my die cutting tool and it runs through and cuts them all the same size, so I can still make my own if I want to, but I don't have to worry about those little inaccuracies that 
pop up when I'm making them by hand. Yeah, I love that idea. Um, I like you just I also buy uh, pre-cut paper templates. Um, I usually just buy a bunch at a time in a few different sizes. So I just have them when I'm in the mood. Um, And then at the same time, I just buy a bunch of fabric glue sticks for basting because those always seem to run out quicker than I think, um, especially if you're a glue baster instead of a thread baster. And then just a note, the hexagon sizes are given for one side of the paper template. So if you buy a one inch hexagon template, that one inch is the measure of one side, not the size fabric square you would start with or the size across the center of the hexagon. In the beginning, I did not know that and I accidentally bought two inch hexagon templates thinking that would correspond to maybe the size square I'd be using. And when I opened the package, I was very, very shocked to find these huge hexagon (laughs) templates. So if you were not aware of that, make sure that you're buying what you, what the size you actually need. (laughs) You know, I had the exact same thing happen to me when I first started doing EPP. I feel like we should just have a a different back to basics about things we learned the hard way when we first started. Yeah, I still have the huge hexagons. They're just too big. I don't know what to do with them. Well, you know, there's actually a project coming up in Quilts and More that uses two-inch ones, so maybe you'll get oh, to put them to use. Perfect. <laughs> it's, my, it's my little tease. You read my mind. <laughs> so my last tip has to do with when you sew the pieces together. So this is after you have basted the fabric over the uh, paper templates. I was taught to layer two hexagons right sides together and whip stitch along one edge. And I'm willing to bet that's how most of us were taught to sew the hexagons together. It used to bug me, however, that when you opened up the two attached hexagons, you could see a little bit of whip stitches on the right side of the fabric. When you sew them together that way, those stitches are just unavoidable. I learned that if you don't want visible stitches on the front, you should hold the hexagons side by side with right sides facing the same direction, um, usually away from you, and the edges abutting rather than on top of each other. A paper clip, or excuse me, a binder clip, not a paper clip, uh, can help hold them together as you sew. If you sew them side by side like that, you don't have to stretch the stitches when you open the two hexagons up. It's a bit finicky to sew them this way, but it's not impossible, especially with a little bit of practice. Sometimes if I want to use the less finicky technique, especially if it's just a fun project I'm doing to relax and I don't really worry about not that worried about if my stitches are visible. I'll just take a pretty thread, like a metallic thread, or um, sometimes even metallic embroidery floss, and then use that so that the visible whip stitches on the finished project look like accents or design choices. I figure if it's unavoidable, I might as well just play into it and embrace it. Great tips, Joanna. Uh, Now I'm in the mood to get out all my paper pieces. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Me too. Yeah. But since we're talking about sewing in spring, why don't we move on to what's on your workspace, a segment where our staff shares what they're working on. So take it away, Joanna. Currently on my workspace is a quilt that I am woefully behind on. It's a baby quilt for two good friends of mine. A little over a year ago today, I was in their wedding, and just a few weeks ago, they welcomed their first child, a baby boy, into the world. I thought for once I would have a baby quilt done on time, but he ended up coming a little early, so so much for that. 
Uh, mom and baby are both fine and healthy though, and that's all that really matters, and I'm just so excited for their new little family. For the quilts, I decided to come up with my own pattern, and I wanted it to be something that would be meaningful for the whole new family. The church where they got married has some cool, yet fairly simple tile work that I always thought would make a good quilt pattern. And since it's fairly simple, I thought it would translate well into a baby quilt because they get washed a lot, so you don't want it to be too complex and too many seams. If you can picture in your head what this tile looks like, it's an on-point square with nine patch corners and some strip pieced units making a frame around it. Thankfully, I have a lot of quilt math skills thanks to my day job, so it wasn't too tricky to figure out pieces to cut. I actually like to draw out my designs on graph paper with a scale of <clears throat> one inch, you know, in real life to one square, and then I just draw out the blocks with their finished sizes so I can just go back and add seam allowances. I planned to fussy cut the on-point squares, and I find the easiest way to do that is to make the center squares the same size as my smallest square quilting ruler. Because it's clear acrylic, I can just place it on top of the fabric, on point, so it's already twisted, uh, over the motifs that I want to be centered in the block, and I'll know exactly what that block is going to look like after it's been fussy cut and the pieces around it have been sewn. I love little shortcuts like that when I'm making my own patterns. It just makes life easier and usually it also means I'm happier with the results. The gender of the baby was going to be a surprise, so I had pulled gender neutral prints from my stash. A duck print with a gray background, cartoon bear prints in lime green, lime green and aqua, and some pops of navy just to give it a little weight against all of those pastels. It was so much fun to put all those baby prints I've been hoarding to good use and um, because I uh, stuck with popular shades like aqua, I actually had a lot of options in my stash that I could mix and match from, so I got to use multiple collections. The blocks are all done, the sashing is almost on, next up is just finishing that top and getting it quilted ASAP. I know the baby is already here, but if I don't force myself to hurry, it's going to turn into a UFO, and then he's not going to get it until he's grown up, and that's just no good. So. Yeah, baby quilts are always a struggle for me because sometimes they end up UFOs. Thanks so much for sharing, Joanna. And thank you to everyone who joined us this week. If you love this podcast, please share it with a sewing buddy or leave us a rating and review. It truly means so much to us when you do that. Have a great week, everyone. <laughs>